Listener supported. WNYC Studios. One of the ways that we're able to make money for our podcast, well, this happened right after the elections happened. All of a sudden, everyone was buying safety pins. And so we decided to sell uh, a safety pin for $2,020 on our website. We're like, hey, buy our safety pin. And this is how you can like support Muslims. No one bought the safety pin, but they did come to the site to make other kinds of donations. That's Taz Ahmed. She's the co-host and co-creator of the podcast Good Muslim, Bad Muslim. I'm Sarah Gonzalez, and this is Work It, the podcast. It's a compilation of some of the best moments from the live event. Here's Taz in a conversation about how to staff and run a podcast, whether you're an independent or part of a network. She was joined by Nigeri Eaton, NPR Senior Manager for Program Acquisition, and Gina Delvac, Head Producer for Call Your Girlfriend. Hello, everyone. Good morning. Uh, we are so excited to be here this morning. How has it been so far? How was Anna Sale? Oh, my gosh. I totally fangirled in the green room because I was listening to that Sex and Money this morning. I was like, oh, my gosh, do you know who you are? So I feel like that's going to be me the, the rest of this conference. Um, I'm so excited to do this uh, uh, panel here today. Um, my name is Taz. I'm with the Good Muslim, Bad Muslim podcast. Uh, it's a monthly podcast where we talk about the good and the bad about being a Muslim American woman. Um, on stage with me today, we, to my left, we have Nigeri Eaton, who is the senior manager for program acquisitions at NPR. And then to their left is Gina Delvac, the producer of Call Your Girlfriend. Hey. Um, such a fan of that one as well. Uh, I know we are here at boot camp today. We're here to have a conversation about how do you, how do you get a, a, a podcast off the ground. And we're going to be talking a little bit about money. But before we get into that, we wanted to um, uh, look to two experts who've started podcasts off the ground. So I have slides. Oh, yeah, that's, that's who we are. If you want to um, social media us, uh, that's uh, how, how to do it. My DMs are open. Say what up. <laughs> Um, one thing to know is that straight out of the gate, you're not going to be amazing. Uh, and I think there's this expectation always that when you start a new project, it has to be awesome off the bat. Um, to prove this uh, slide, uh, Nigeria and Gina were both kind enough to provide a couple of examples. So Gina, I think your tape is first. What are we going to hear? So this is one of the first um, pilots that we did for Call Your Girlfriend, of which it was not a kind of robust piloting process like Nigeria's going to talk to you about. Um, <clears throat> our show, if you haven't heard it, is a conversation between best friends about topics that they care about, so women, two women talking in a chat show format. And uh, th I had this idea of like essentially always having a blooper opener because both of my hosts, Anne Friedman and Aminatu So, didn't have very much experience in audio. So there were a lot of fuck-ups on the tape that I thought were really funny when I was editing, and you'll hear how that came out. <laughs> All right, let's play. All right, welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a, a podcast, podcast for... Oh. <laughs> That's it. Call girlfriend. A podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. Give your reasons. Yeah, and why, why are you in a podcast? 
We're in sort of a classic long distance bi-coastal romance. For how long now? Four, three years? Four years? So it was pretty terrible. Um, <laughs> by about episode four, we developed, if you've heard the show, a very standard intro. Welcome, my name is, my name is, here's our agenda, and the music plays, uh, you know, more standardized. But this was sort of like, you know, the danger of trying to be a little too cute. And on the other hand, like, this is podcasting, you get to do whatever you want. And so that kind of early experimentation will really feed you creatively as you go forward, even if you look back and cringe, like, I can't believe, Rachel, I sent you this tape because it's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> now, Nigeri, what, uh, what, what were you able to send to us? Yeah, so um, uh, I brought some tape from Invisibilia. Um, this is from the season before last. And so at the beginning, you know, you're not going to sound great. But even when you're established, sometimes things don't go well. It's, you know, uh, Invisibilia is great. They are, it's a really ambitious show. And they experiment a lot, which is great, but sometimes experiments are failures. And so you're going to hear a little bit of that failure where they uh, try to take advantage of someone's family member who's visiting, who has a saxophone, and they're like, go in the booth, let's record some stuff. I think it's going to work. And so you can, let's see if it worked. <laughs> How the docile grasshopper turns into a swarming cannibalistic locust, it turned out to be a little thing. When a drought happens, the grasshoppers all have to crowd into the same patch of grass. Their long hind legs rub together, and it's like tickle torture. The rubbing together releases some chemical which sets things in motion. So I think they felt the results were really like wah wah. So um, <laughs> they went back and uh, did something different. So here's how it ended up in this in the episode. It turned out to be a little thing. When a drought happens, the grasshoppers all have to crowd into the same patch of grass. Their long hind legs rub together, and it's like tickle torture. The rubbing together releases some chemical which sets things in motion. It actually <laughs> All right, so very different, right? Very different. Um, and luckily, you know, they, we have the resources to work with. Uh, a composer and a sound designer and realize like that's not going to always be the case for everyone but um, I think it just shows that you know experimentation is also really good and it's also really good to realize when it's not working to do, do something different yeah absolutely um, we, I couldn't send over our audio because we lost it we did a practice run of our first podcast a year before our first podcast actually came out and we recorded it on an iPad that lost all of its memory, and so it, it's, it was gone. It, it's lost forever. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I think that's kind of the experimentation process is that you kind of have to try and try and try again. Yeah. So my next question is for you, Nigeri. Yeah. As the senior manager of program acquisitions at NPR, what do you look for when, in, when acquiring things? Yeah, um, so when we're looking to acquire something, we're looking at a variety of things. We want to make sure that um, there's different reasons for acquiring things. So if we're trying to reach a new audience, a younger audience, a more diverse audience, um, you know, or, try, or we're trying to get something that speaks to a broader audience. Um, uh, examples of this is that last year we acquired uh, Radio Ambulante, which is an amazing, amazing yeah. podcast. Um, and um, the great thing about that podcast is it already had its voice, right? It's been around for five seasons. Um, and it really, I think, demonstrated NPR's commitment to trying to uh, reach out to new audiences. Um, and, you know, we really want to make sure we find a way to 
bring in more Latino journalists into our newsroom. So it's not just about acquiring the podcast, but is there another layer of strategy of like making sure we're getting more voices throughout the network? Um, another example of this, uh, something that we acquired recently is Wow in the World, which is our first kids podcast. Um, and it existed in a completely different form. It was um, a segment of this Friday weekly, the Friday episode of this weekly show called Kids First, uh, which is on the Sirius Network. Um, it's a kids channel on Sirius Network, so like it's hosted by this one, Absolutely Mindy. And if you're a parent and you have Sirius, like she's like a rock star for kids. It's amazing. I've seen more kids be way more excited to meet her than anyone else at NPR, <laughs> um, including Guy Raz, her co-host. Um, but that was just like a, a short segment um, on that show, and um, they had the idea to make it a podcast, um, and we thought we could help them um, reach the audience that they want to reach, and it'd be great to kind of bring new content to a, a segment of our audience who you know might be listening to NPR because they're in the backseat of their parents' car, they have no choice, but like here's something geared towards them. That's amazing. Um, and I Call Your Girlfriend obviously has a different path, uh, what, what do you think that people need to get started on their having their own podcast? Yeah, so many things. I think one of the biggest things that you know people here who may be just getting into it or thinking about starting a podcast can take away is understanding some of the roles that you're going to fill. Um, if you're an indie, I, it's still you know me and my two business partners who are Anna and Amina, the hosts. Basically, you're doing everything. So I think Nigeria is going to get into like all of the roles when you have a fully staffed out operation like NPR. But even in a smaller show, as you're trying to build, it's like someone is essentially being the editor. And an editor is different than the person who edits audio. Um, there's producer, there's hosting, audience development. And we'll, we'll, I think we'll talk more specifically about that. But there's all these different roles. So kind of being prepared to be nimble and learn as you go. It's not just on the creative iteration side. Um, but, you know, for example, like, uh, I am the producer of our show. I've edited and mixed every episode of Call Your Girlfriend. The mixing side really shows sometimes. Um, not, a, not a professional mixer. And, um, but I'm also, like, the tax matters partner for our LLC. So, you know, there's these balancing of the creative and editorial sides. And there's kind of a thing where you're like, oh, this is this really cool creative project. And then, like, man, I'm spending a lot of time. And I'm going to want to make some money because this has turned into almost a full-time job that I'm not getting paid for yet, unless you have some other funding structure, which we can also talk about. Um, and so you're like, well, I'm going to need to like open a bank account. You're like, oh, shit, we started a small business. I had no idea. Here I thought this was a podcast talking to my friends. So having a little bit, you know, if you can learn from my mistakes, it's like all these things will develop as you go along. But having a little more vision for where things could go if everything goes well will serve you well to know the different kinds of roles and es essentially establishing a team because a lot of us are one-woman operators, right? And there's so much that goes into it beyond the audio production itself. So kind of being ready for that. What about you, Nigeri? Uh, you obviously operate with a much bigger operation. Um, how do you navigate the same kind of production in a bigger system? Yeah, I think there's a, a picture um, I provided. Oh, that was us. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this is NPR's Code Switch team. Um, they're listening to the episode uh, right before they publish. Very small office, very large team. Um, so... <laughs> Within it, Code Switch is a weekly podcast, right? And um, it's got the host reporters, uh, Jane Demby and Shreem Mirasal Miraji, and then they have, you know, the Code Switch team of reporters, uh, Adrian, Karen, Kat. Then we have uh, two production assistants. We have uh, 
Steve Drummond, who is um, the senior editor. We have Sammy Innigan, who's uh, editor slash producer. There's um, you know, a composer, uh, Ramteen, who's also a producer on how I built this. So it's a really large team. Um, and all I really have to focus on things is editorially, because we have other departments at NPR, because we're a larger organization, that deal with things like sponsorship and marketing. And that's good, because it's already difficult enough with all those people to put out this show week to week. On the flip side of that, we have a show like Pop Culture Happy Hour, which is our, you know, um, Linda and some rotating hosts sometimes and guests, um, but there's one producer who also is the editor, who's also the mixer. So there's different kind of models um, for what our teams look like. But for shows that both we kind of own and produce in-house, but also shows that we um, acquire, you know, we really try to um, make sure that those teams only focus on the editorial, and then we have other people who can who take on the other work, which I know is really hard for if you're going about it by yourself because there's so much work that never ends and keeps getting added to your 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 desk. Yeah. These are all the roles <laughs> that we've listed. Um, I feel like I do 80% of this on this list. Um, so for us at Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, we're a three-person operation. So Zara and I are the co-hosts of the podcast, and we have uh, a, someone who's sound engineers for us. And it really does take a lot of work. I'm, um, we haven't figured out the... I think that it was what you were just saying, Gina, is that you know we're running a business. And I think we just started off as being a podcast where it's just two friends having a conversation. We just didn't really think long-term of, of what could happen with this podcast. So I wanted to, um, how many of you have a podcast already? And how many of you are yeah. thinking of starting a podcast? Oh, look at that. So this is a question, I guess, for people who are thinking of starting their podcast. So for folks who are just getting started, they can either come to you with an idea, but Gina, for people who want to come just start something, what are some things that they need, how much money should you invest in it, what did you buy, um, and what do you need to get started? I think we have a slide for this. Um, yeah, if you, there's some, I would say like you're, you should be ready to be, spend about $1,000 in an upfront cost, and that's not including compensation for your time. Um, these are some examples of what things run. Yeah, go for it, you can pause <laughs> on that slide. Um, and. Uh, yeah, see me after and I can tell you some gear specs if you're interested in that. But basically, when we started, and this is like a little bit of the clip you heard earlier, we had probably over a year where we were using those USB podcasting mics that plug into your computer. At this point, I really don't recommend it. I think that there are things that we were able to try that were a function of starting in 2014 when the space was way less crowded than it is now. And I think like now you want to think about starting your podcast, some of those early episodes, kind of the way when you look at around the tech space, the way people think about a product launch or a film you know, premiere, it's like you're doing a little marketing in advance of launching, you have a trailer, you have your digital materials together, logos, art, all that kind of stuff. And so that's to say that like this is the minimum that you want for recording because if your show doesn't sound good, if you get a little bit of buzz, you may turn off a huge segment of your audience right away. I think the standards have grown so much. So uh, apologies to anyone who's listening to the back catalog of our show because the early episodes are really a little cr crunchy. Um, <laughs> And so to that end, I think one of the easiest things you can do, and maybe some of you have radio backgrounds, is approach it like a reporter in the field kit. You probably want for every member, every host on your team, if you have one, two, or three, everyone should have their own mic. 
Everyone should be in their own channel when you edit. You want to plug that mic into a digital audio recorder. And from there, you have a lot of flexibility. And so this is kind of your initial budget that will, this kind of thing can take you a long way. So I know like a thousand bucks for a passion project is a lot to start, but I think it really sets you on the right footing to have that professional sound so that when you blow up, because I see a lot of talent in this room, you're ready to, to handle that attention. Yeah. I have two quick asides. Yeah. One yeah. is, I, I come from the world of documentary film. Yeah. So $1,000 a startup is like, sounds so like glamorous, like so great to me. Because, yeah, you know, it sounds modest. Film is, is so, so much money. Yeah. Um, and then you still get nowhere even with like $30,000. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it's, it's great to hear. Yeah. And um, does anyone listen to The Read? All right. So last week they had some kind of mess up and then the epi- like they were like, oh, no episode this week. And there was like, Fire and brimstone all, oh, all over yeah. Twitter. Like, no, that's no, you gotta. Oh, yeah, do Crystal's it. like, I'm, I'm leaving yeah. this forever. Yeah. I hate you and guys. And so they put out their episode where, like, only I think one mic was functioning, hers, <sighs> and then Kid Fury's was not. And, like, you can have crappy audio when you've been around for years and people are like yeah. addicts to listen to your show, mm-hmm. but you cannot start off that way. Right. People will. Not in this, not in this not, moment. Because they've moment. been around for a while. They've too. been around for a moment now, yeah. too. But in this moment, like, people will turn off immediately. People, right. Listeners are way too savvy. I see it on our survey results all the time, uh, people, people will be like, it sounds like they record it in two different places. Like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that happens. It's long distance besties. Yeah. They're not in the same room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Uh, Nigeri, for you, uh, what does all of this look like at NPR? Yeah, so, you know, obviously at NPR, um, we have a ton of, of resources in terms of um, people and in terms of technology that we're using. Um, um, I wanted to share this, though, um, as a way to start thinking about um, what it'll take financially to, to start your podcast. Um, NPR Trading has this model, but also I provided it to Rachel. I think hopefully we'll be able to provide it to you all today. But if not, if you go to uh, training.npr.org, be able to see this. This is a variation of a template I use all the time when um, working with content we're developing, right? So on the left is a column, uh, columns where it's like your budget, like, you know, what are the roles you need to get started you know, to do this show, to put it out the way you want it to, where are all those costs involved. Um, and then to the right is like a table that's, um, everything is, there's formulas attached, so it's, everything is like, you know, um, what CPMs, um, how much could you charge per ad, you know, and maybe when you start off, if you're independent, this year one model is like zero. You know you're going into the hole, going into a hole. But for year two, you know it might look different. Um, so you can input, you know, CPMs, the number of downloads you expect, um, uh, how many mid rolls you're going to have, pre rolls, things like that. And it spits out this figure and lets you know like how much money you're going to be losing or what's potential revenue. Hopefully you'll be cool. getting some money. Um, so we think we use this for everything that we develop um, and. Um, we have it like a three-year plan. Like, what does it look like? You know, even if it's in the first year, we're not making any money. That's fine, as long as within the projection of three years, we think we can make it money. Um, and this is, you know, we don't like live or die by this model, right? Um, because there's other reasons why we're acquiring, developing things, right? If there's a strategy to go after a new audience that's not used to coming to NPR, like, it's fine if we take a little bit more time to make money, to, to bring in money for that because there's a higher purpose or a different purpose. Um, so I think it's, it's useful for, for, for you all as well. Yeah, it's useful for me for sure. That's, yeah. <laughs> 
for good Muslim, bad Muslim, we're not, uh, we're not really making money. Um, we don't sell ads. And I think um, one of the reasons, one of the big reasons why we don't sell ads is because we're a monthly podcast and most people who sell ads want podcasts that are weekly or more frequently um, put out. But we don't like talking about Islamophobia that often. So we can only take it once a month. And so that was our mental health. You know, that was like how we were creating that health, safe space for us. Um, so these are things that you have to take into consideration when it, when it comes to the, all, of, all of this. Um, the next question is about where to find money. And we, we, this, is, this is a question I spend a lot of time thinking about because we're, we're still trying to figure, figure that out for us. Um, so I know that there are ads and there are nonprofits and there are podcast collectives and there are live shows. That go? Oops. There we go. Um, so that's my question, is where do people find money for podcasts? Should I go first? Sure. You can go. No, go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, so Call Your Girlfriend, we have an ad-supported model, but we had a year and a half where we made no money. It was all what those tech bros call sweat equity. Um, <laughs> and so um, that's also something to think about if you're assembling a team or maybe you came here to like find people to partner with. You're a host looking for a producer. You're a producer looking to attach to a project. Someone may or may not be able to pay your rate, but you may decide like we want to go into business together and have that equity that you can develop down the line. So that's one way to make money is like making the investment of your time. Um, having sponsors, a sponsorship is a little different than an ad depending on how you run it because you can also just say, hey, I'm cool, give me money. This is a project you care about. And there are some people who are willing to do that and they're, you know, they'll look at the reach of it or your intended audience and where advertising tends to be on this cost per impression basis. So the, it's like a standard pre-roll I think is, um, between you know 15 and 22 dollars CPM, and that's cost per 1,000 listeners. So if you have 2,000 listeners to your show, you're making 36 dollars on that ad. You might as well have no ads sometimes. And so there's sort of like all these thresholds and balancing things to think about. Philanthropy would be grants, um, and, you, and you can talk. I, I think you know much more about institutional yeah. <laughs> yeah. grants. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so yeah so. At NPR, we have an entire department, or actually a separate company, um, called National Public Media that sells uh, sponsorship for both uh, NPR and um, PBS. Um, and so that's actually one of the great benefits from when, you know, that we offer to people when we're trying to acquire a show. It's like, you don't have to think about that anymore. There's a team that's really uh, good at doing that. Um, it's, it's, still <laughs> it's still a stressful process. Um, then there's philanthropy. Um, again, at NPR, we have an entire department uh, development department, uh, but philanthropy is a long game, right? So first of all, you have to make sure you have content in the subject area that like foundations or people who want to donate money like appeal to them. For us, like for last over last year, we got a lot of interest in people wanting to donate um, sort for content that's around religion or education's a big one. Um, STEM is actually like like no pun intended, like losing steam a little bit. <laughs> um, there, you know, I got an email saying that they want. Uh, a foundation's looking for uh, content around vulnerable populations, but they, they find vulnerable um, as veterans and homeless people only, when I mm. could argue there's a lot more categories yeah. of vulnerable people, right? Um, and then, um, you know, it's a long game, so like, you have to make sure that, you know, if you're launching something, like, okay, is it gonna be around in a year? If so, then it's like, usually around eight months, at least, before money starts to come in through that route. So, you know, I think it's something to think about, but know that it's definitely the, the long game. One of the ways that we're able to make money for our podcast 
is, um, well, this happened right after the elections happened. All of a sudden, people were like, well, we want to give money to the ACLU and groups that are helping out Muslim communities. And we're like, hey, we're a Muslim podcast. You can give to us. And this was when everyone was buying safety pins. And so we decided to sell uh, a safety pin for two, $2,020 on our website. We're like, hey, buy our safety pin. And this is how you can like, support Muslims who are making a difference. No one bought the safety pin, but they what? did come to the site to make other kinds of donations, just monetary, not buying up safety pins. But you know, there's, there's also creative ways to kind of jump on the window of opportunity that's happening in society, and yeah. you can capitalize on that. But uh, yes, I do think that people need to be spending money on Muslims yeah. who are changing the narrative too, so yeah. less capitalize. Yeah. Um, so my next slide. Oh, sorry, we skipped live oh, yeah. shows, and I just oh, want to yeah. shout that out real quick, which um, I think it takes somewhat of an existing audience, like you sort of have built up your fan base before you're going to try to fill this theater, which we tried to do unsuccessfully last August. It was a really fun show, but it was like about the number of people or less than are here. And I was like, okay, this was a little riskier than we expected. So um, think, you know, thinking about starting small with live shows could be a really fun way because people will pay a ticket price. You can rent a venue. You can sell tickets yourself. You know, again, that kind of sweat equity into building a little more following and creating community. It's sort of the comedy model. A lot of comedy podcasts do this too. Or like, what's that new um, crooked media show, Love It or Leave It? Like, he does that as a live, in-person comedy thing that then they make into a podcast. So it's, it's something to pursue. It was one of our earliest sources of revenue, but um, and selling merch we also have done decently well on. But again, that's kind of like building on, like leveraging an existing brand. So if you already have a project that has a brand, that's maybe an early thing you can do feeding into your podcast or cross-pollinating those two. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. There are a lot of really dope women backstage here to make all of this happen. So it can be costly as well. Yeah. yeah. We do a lot of live shows at college campuses. So oh, we'll yeah. do the college campus tour. Um, so we won't charge... Uh, a door ticket for their mm -hmm. for for those shows because it's just usually students that are coming through, but the campus is paying us to come to their um, campus to speak, which is appearance great. fee. Yeah, that's a good way to do it. Yeah, well, I want to say one more thing yeah. about sponsorship. Um, and that um, I don't want people to leave here feeling like intimidated. Like you have to have like a certain amount of downloads or listen, uh, yeah. listeners before you can start selling sponsorship. Um, I do think um, one of the really interesting things is. If you have like a, even if you have a smaller audience, but it's a kind of audience that will speak directly to a sponsor, like that works really well too. Like um, mm -hmm. we had this show that we launched in July called What's Good with Church and Bobito. Um, we were like legendary New York uh, radio DJs. And, um, you know, we were able to bring on Red Bull, uh, Red Bull oh, nice. uh, Radio as a sponsor because uh, they know that that audience is trying to attract more diverse audience to NPR and that they're trying, you know, they're, they have like a musical pedigree. Um, and so they're, that's an audience that they're really interested in, in speaking to. So even though like that, that show doesn't have nearly the numbers of some of our other shows are like, like something like Invisibilia, it speaks to the exact type of people that they want to reach. Um, and so think about that as well. Like think about, think really creatively about who, what does your audience look like and who wants to speak directly to that audience? Same thing about in the world. Like it's, you know, kids podcast as a genre is really new. Um, but, you know, people love trying to sell the kids, right? <laughs> um, of course, we're, it's a little bit difficult for us because we're um, public media and nonprofit and there's lots of rules around that about who can, what, who can sell ads to kids. Um, but it's definitely an audience like that certain, um, certain people, certain companies want to reach out to. Yeah, that's great. 
Um, our next slide is what to expect money-wise. So there's a recent podcast maker named Alex Laughlin who put together a survey on salaries and audio production and passed it along through her network through uh, public radio and radio Google groups, uh, Twitter and Facebook. Um, I think we have a slide of this. Yeah. So the caveat to this data is that the total sample was 447. Um, and it, the data does skew whites by 72% and female by 65%. So looking at this information, we can see that the average salary for audio, I think it's audio producers on this, um, is 78,000 um, for podcasting companies and 56,000 for public media companies. So my question for the two of you is, does this ring true in your experience? Um, so I can't talk as frankly about um, salaries at NPR as I would, I would probably like to. Um, but I will just say, like, one of the things I, I guess I have questions about this survey is it says podcast salaries, right? So, like, that could mean anything. Um, and so, like, does that include production assistants? And does that include editors? Does that include producers? Because that's wide range, ah, sorry, a wide range of salaries. And so, um, you know, I, I, I don't think this... Um, I guess if it's an average of everything, maybe it rings true. I don't know, it's, but it's really hard to tell because I'm mm -hmm. not sure what what positions in particular are. Um, but there's, you know, the the range is greater than what is presented in the survey, at least for NPR. Yeah, I think that's true. And you sort of see, I think Alex grouped these by years of experience, so that sort of moderated some of it. Um, I used to work in public radio. This seems approximately true for people about mid-career level. I think for those of you who are independent or trying to start a show the way we did Call Your Girlfriend, which is a side project that develops and becomes a business, it's going to be way different and all over the place. I can say that now almost a little over three years into it, we're making six figures a year in business revenue, which is great. Awesome. Uh, thank you. Um, it's uh, this show that was sort of like our late night, every other week, like goofy catch-up project is about is a little over 50% of both my income and my work, which is awesome. So some of that is coming, you know, it's like one of the benefits of staying small is that whatever gains you may see from all of these revenue sources we talked about come back to a smaller team. Um, I think in terms of how much you pay people, this is a decent guide if you're in a range like we are of trying to figure out, um, you know, do you build out the team and how to do that? Um, yeah, I think that there's, yeah, there's so much more range than this because it's not really accounting for people who are not in a staff job. But this is, if you are applying for staff jobs or if you have one, it's really handy to go in and look at this data to see comparatively what's going on and maybe, you know, why you would make a jump between one type of company versus another for sure. Yeah, yeah there are so many models to use. We're here in LA, we're starting an Asian American podcast collective called Potluck. And so through that conversation, we've been really thinking about how do we create a business revenue as a collective. But then I love what you've been doing with Call Your Girlfriend. It's, I mean, six figures. That's uh, as uh, someone who is also two girlfriends just talking podcast. That's kind of amazing to We're hear We're going to get that. you there. Yeah. Well, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> to get all of us to that mm -hmm. point where we can turn this into a really big industry where women's voices are valued like that. Um, that's that's great to hear that this is happening. Um, this is, uh, you, you touched a lot upon this, and I think I touched upon this too, is that for podcasts that are just starting to get off the ground, I think I have another slide. Um, 
uh, for podcast just getting off the ground, how do you find a sound engineer and or a producer? And how much do you budget to pay them? Yeah, so you know, this is going to depend a lot on everyone's budgets and how you're paying yourselves or not and what sources of revenue you might have. I think if you are, I think it's really helpful to invest resources in sounding good. And so engineers run in the neighborhood of, I think it's about 50 bucks an hour. And you can also look at, I think AIR has a session here, the Association of Independence in Radio, if anyone's not familiar with them. They list a bunch of freelance rates that are guides for both local public radio stations and national networks. And I think they are adding some podcasting stuff. If you're ever like, how much should I pay someone? Because I think, you know, not screwing people over is always a good idea. That's our whole goal of making money is also so we can pay people fairly, um, including ourselves. And so having engineering talent is good. Um, you can find people any number of ways. Air has a whole directory, and you can also join that if you're looking for freelance work. Um, there are lots of listservs and groups you can join. Um, I think in terms of recruiting producers or ho like that kind of matchmaking, of your producer looking for a host to partner with, your host looking for a producer to partner with, that can be a longer um, project. And I think like talk to everyone here is going to be one of your best bets to find those kind of folks. Um, and uh, what are, what's your uh, thoughts on that? Uh, the question is for the small shows that are looking to be picked up by big networks or just want sponsors, um, what are the downloads needed and how do, groups, how do smaller podcasts get to that level? So how do smaller podcasts that want, like, get to the level of being acquired by NPR? Um, so I should say that we have a, a portal that we created, uh, nprstorylab.submittable.com. And um, if you have an idea, please, please, please uh, submit. I reviewed all the applications. Um, it could be something for acquisition. It could be something where it's like just a germ of an idea in your head and you haven't recorded anything. Um, or all ideas, ideas are welcome for podcasts, radio shows, recurring segments for news magazines. Um, and so we don't really have a, a threshold for download goals. In fact, like, you know, the more popular the show, the more it's like out of our price range to acquire it. So I think we're looking for things that are like on the cusp or on the bubble. And those are things I, I, I really want to look at. Um, and I just should just say uh, that um, if you're looking for a full-time staff job, NPR is con constantly has positions open um, for producers. Like, it, it is. The climate out there is tough, man. Like, there's a ton of competitors. There's a lot of stealing of people around. Um, <laughs> over the summer, they doubled the referral bonus because it's been so hard to find producers, wow. particular, mm. and editors. So look at what's available. And if you want to put, like, who referred you? Nigerian. Then I'll get a nice little check. It's great. But, um, yeah, like, there's, as I, get, as I said before, I come from documentary film where, like, the, the big question issue every single day for years has been how do you make a sustainable career as a documentary filmmaker? The answer is there isn't a way. So I'm always trying to push people to like, this podcasting, it works, man. There's jobs. Go over there. So That's great. Um, what kind of pitches have you been getting and how do people, how can people, what's a good, like, like is it a one pager or what's the best way to do this? Yeah, there's, um, there's, a lot of detailed language about on our website about what we're looking for, but essentially, like a lot of the podcasts have been like pitches have been like, "I know a thing about some stuff. Give me a podcast," <laughs> which is not a great pitch. Yeah. Um, so, um, so I, I just suggest people like read everything. Like, you know, we want people to think really carefully and thoughtfully about like what their podcast is, podcast is, why it should be an NPR property, and what are you bringing to the table with NPR, right? Because NPR could work with anybody, and we also have a ton of great people on on staff so it's like it's your opportunity to really sell us like this is what you guys are missing and you need to like get on this idea with me so 
that's what I want people to think about, not just like, you know, I'm a tax accountant and I want to do a podcast <laughs> yeah. about tax law, which is a real pitch. <laughs> so, no, don't. Did you take it? No, we did not. <laughs> Okay, so before we uh, leave this uh, topic, uh, we want, I do want to talk about what's on the slide. Be prepared for your success. So um, sometimes making podcasts is really hard, and you, you, are, you, you work on it for a long time, and you don't see the fruits of your labor, and then something will happen, and, and you'll go like, wow. Um, so how have you two uh, prepared for your success? Okay. <laughs> um, Setting goals took us a long time <laughs> and I think is really valuable. I think really having, um, whether it's annually, every, you know, a couple times a year, quarterly, sitting down and thinking about where am I at, where would I like to go, what would it take to get there? I mean, this is the most obvious thing ever. But I think um, having, and then some of the stuff we talked about, like when you're First, if your show is already out there, um, you know, really kind of iterating on or building up like your website, what does your logo look like? Who are you reaching out to? How are you seeking cross promotion? If you're getting ready to launch something, um, having, you know, like paying a good designer, having your images look good, it's like there's going to be a while where it takes so long to get through audio and listen to all of it that someone may not have the patience for it. So you have to think that this is like anything else that you need to brand and so some of that visual aesthetic like that's one other place in addition to your sound gear that you can kind of like project what your image is going to be by how you do all that kind of iconography stuff that you would think is outside the realm of audio but is pretty intrinsic like um, talking to people at Apple the number one feedback that they get is like oh I started listening to this because the album art looked really good in the iTunes store and we heard that early on because we hired our brilliant and friend designer, Kanisha Sneed, to do our logo. And like they're especially dude bros. They're always mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, your, your logo looked cute. So I started listening to it. I learned a lot about periods. Um, <laughs> so it can Perfect. have that effect. <laughs> um, I think uh, expectation setting is really important. Um, and like I, I said before, like, you know, we had different expectations based on like what are the goals or what's the strategy around this podcast. Um, I also think checking in about things is really important. Like try at least once a year, think like where where are we at with the show? What we where was what have we done with it? Like what are the things that work? What are the things that haven't worked? Like let's set a goal for like we want to increase the audience by thirty percent or next year. And like how are we going to do that? So having those conversations. Um, these are some pictures from. Um, uh, the visibility team. Um, this is what success looks like. Um, um, and I think one of the things like, that we've learned also is like, you know, you can have a really great podcast, a really great product. Like it's, it has a lot of downloads, but like that is a grind, right? So how do you like, how do you also grow the team so it helps provide some more stability? So um, you know, people can continue the work, but the, like don't crash and feel burned out. Um, so there's a lot of things to kind of keep in mind with that. Yeah, we, we have about three more minutes left, but luckily we're on the last question. Okay. So um, this is referring to knowing your audience and loving your audience. Um, for us at Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, we really try hard to recenter the conversation on our experience so we don't define terms. We expect that people are smart enough to know how to Google and use a dictionary, and we don't think that our podcast is explaining to people. And... Um, 
that's been really interesting because we have a lot of non-Muslims that listen to our podcast who uh, at first were very uncomfortable with the fact that things weren't being explained to them. Um, but then they still write us emails saying like, okay, I'm, I'm learning. This is great. It feels like I'm eavesdropping, which is great. So my question to both of you is what's been interesting about creating a podcast for an audience and how do you know your audience and how does the audience shape what you do? So, I mean, we kind of cheat in that we have like a whole department that's yeah. called Audience Insight Research. Um, and so, <laughs> um, so like, you know, before we launch a podcast or a, a new program, we do a survey of our um, NPR, list, like NPR listener group. It's like 9,000 people who volunteer who are super duper passionate about NPR, um, who get provide feedback on things, but also like once the show's out there, like you'll occasionally hear a call out like, hey, let us know what you think about our show if you go to code switch slash survey, like npr.codeswitch slash survey. Um, and even at NPR One, we've done things where like, you know, you just add a, a Google form survey, which is takes no resources to do, just like, kind of point people to it in your podcast. Uh, but yeah, we know a lot about our audience. Um, and. Um, it's been really good, and we'll, we'll get you know emails like that too. I was just laughing because we had a whole episode of Code Switch called "Explanatory Comma," which is like one of the most popular uh, episodes of, of that season or that year. Um, but yeah, we I mean, I, I'm also the kind of person where like if I take a, a, a taxi and I like take, tell them to go, I want NPR. Yeah. Like no matter what, they're like, I listen to NPR all the time. Yes. Here's my opinion about it. <laughs> it can be great and sometimes not, but that's look great. But always good to hear. Yeah. Yeah, I think in, like understanding kind of who you're speaking to and engaging deeply, but also kind of maintaining your own voice, right, is like on that more um, qualitative level, not the quantitative one, that um, people are coming for what you specifically can bring. And it really jogged this thought when Nigeria was talking about like how you would pitch NPR for acquisition. If you're doing something that doesn't sound like NPR already, that's a good thing. That's not a reason to not pitch you. It's also not a reason to not start because those are the voices that are going to gain the most traction, that have the opportunity to grow. They're the people we need to be hearing from. And I think that that's where you get the really passionate audience engagement. So, you know, like showing some love to the fans, engaging on social, pretty obvious stuff I think that you would expect, but really kind of existing to some extent outside of your podcast itself to have that feedback. And then, yeah, those surveys, the reason you hear calls for surveys all the time on every podcast you listen to is because the um, digital data that's collected based on your listening habits is sort of scattered and different companies have different parts of it and they may or may not share it with you, the podcast creator, depending on your relationship with them. So those surveys are one way that you can at least approximate if you get a big enough sample size to be like, okay, you know, call your girlfriend. Our audience is 96% female, majority under 35. And knowing things like that, especially we were talking about pursuing on the money side of things, pursuing individual sponsors, you really want to know approximately who you want to give them those kind of marketer style details of who are they talking to. Um, but that's, yeah, anyway, that's kind of like describing your audience, but knowing and engaging with your audience is also, you know, that's like at least sitting down and answering some of the emails that come in, responding to tweets, all that stuff goes a long way because people are, they get very passionate about you if you're hosting the show. And it like, the first time I saw, uh, I went to the United State of Women conference with Amina and Anne in the Obama White House, RIP. Um, and uh, and uh, we were in line to check in with Secret Service because it's DC and it's crazy. And this woman 
literally chase my two hosts down the street to like talk to them and get a picture. And it was mildly terrifying, but it's like, as a podcaster, this is one of the best things that can happen is that your voice in this intimate space of someone's gym time, of some in the car with someone like on the radio, in the shower, whatever it is, that that's a really powerful bond. And so kind of respecting that and honoring that um, your audience is going to be bringing their stories to you as a result of you being forthcoming about yourself or ideas that you're passionate about. Well, thank you so much. It's the end of our time here. We hope that you got enough to get you started on this wonderful day of boot camping. I know we gave, you, we gave kind of an overview of how to get a podcast off the ground, but hopefully you'll get more details as the day goes on. And we're looking forward to hanging out with you all in the next three days. Yeah. Thank you to our panelists. Thank you. Thanks, guys. That was Taz Ahmed, Nigeri Eaton, and Gina Delvac speaking at the 2017 Work It Festival. Both the festival and the podcast are produced by WNYC Studios and are made possible by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with additional support from the Annenberg Foundation. Event sponsors include Cole Hahn, Mac Cosmetics, and thirdlove.com. 